Welcome. This is Unexpected Terms. They tipped me out the wheelchair one day and, and I couldn't crawl. I had a lot of things on my bucket list to do before I hit 50. Uh, learning to walk again wasn't one of them and especially learning to crawl again. And I physically couldn't do it. And it was frustrating. And there were times when I thought, you might never do this. You might never be able to do it. You might never be able to do those things that you enjoy. Hello, I'm Anne Dibbon, and this is Unexpected Terms, where along with my co-hosts, Beverly and Julie, we get to talk to some pretty incredible people whose lives haven't quite gone to plan. None more so than today's guest, Brian Wheeler. Julie and I first came across Brian in a very short news clip on BBC South, and we couldn't wait to find out more. When the presenters hinted at Brian's story, it resonated with me, so I adjusted my morning routine so I could listen and hear more from Brian. His story was so inspiring, we got in touch and were delighted he accepted our invitation to be a guest on the show. So without further ado, here's Brian's story. Hello, Brian. How are things going? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to be able to, to come on and, uh, and tell my story. Obviously, September the 5th will be three and a half years to the day since, since I had the emergency surgery. So, so what better way of celebrating being told you'll never walk again by running a half marathon? Sometimes I wish that in my brain I, I'd just been happy with walking again, but uh, that's not me. So I've, I've taken... This challenge on, and, and it is a big challenge for me. Definitely huge. Feel well prepared, and uh, it's only two weeks to go. Could Brian, could you explain a little bit about what happened to you in uh, 2018? Yeah, sure. So May the Fourth, a lot of people know as Star Wars Day. It's not quite got the same yeah. uh, the, <laughs> the same appeal for me, sadly, anymore. But about a week before April the 27th, I, I think was a Saturday. I might have the de- the date wrong, but the but the Saturday before May the Fourth, I was uh, in the local supermarket and uh, and buying uh, peanuts specifically, and I was putting them through the scanner. Uh, and my back went into spasm and I was frozen for five to 10 minutes, couldn't move, uh, in a lot of pain, managed to to complete what I was doing, um, took me half an hour to try and get into my car. And, and, and I remember actually standing in that in the car park um, in tears thinking, I can't, I can't, I can't physically get in the car. I'm in too much pain. I probably shouldn't have been driving if, I, if I'm honest, but but, but you go into a, a place of, you know, I've got to get home, got to get this sorted. Rang triple one. They said, you need to see the duty doctor, who I saw at about six o'clock that evening. They did functional power tests and, and everything you would expect them to do to see that there was nothing serious or untoward going on. Concluded there wasn't. Um, packed me off with a, with a whole bag full of drugs to, to muscle relaxants and, and painkillers and, and stuff to help me sleep and, and said, You'll be fine. It'll be about a week and it'll all start to ease. I've had back issues all of my life and I thought it's just another episode. Then on the Thursday night, Thursday the 3rd of May, everything changed. And I remember being, um, I I always recount this story, like like a dog circling around its bed, trying to be comfortable. And I was kneeling on the floor, lying on the bed, lying on the floor, and I I couldn't get comfortable. The pain was getting worse. Uh, And about four in the morning, I rang triple one again and said, you know, that. I think something serious is going on. I was aware of the condition I was later diagnosed with, but 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 you almost don't want to believe that it's happening. And I thought, well, maybe sure. it's not. Maybe it's just just something really bad, painfully wise. They called an ambulance. Uh, the ambulance service were busy. They came. They came about six in the morning. They said, 
breathe in this uh, nitrous oxide and uh, keep sucking that tube until we tell you to stop. But nothing would take the pain away. And, uh, and I must have had 10 litres of the stuff and, uh, and my eyes were pointing in different directions, but the pain was still pretty unbearable. They, they got me to hospital in Portsmouth and put me into A&E. And, and, then, and then they took me upstairs and said, uh, we need to scan you. And, and it was when I was in the MRI scanner that I lost all feeling from the waist down. And that's pretty scary. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't do anything. I couldn't wiggle my toes. And that was the first thing I thought, well, blimey, I can't wiggle my toes. Can I move my leg? No, I can't move my leg. Can I feel anything? No, I can't feel anything. Mm, what's going on? And, and nobody could tell me that because they weren't sure. They, they, you know, they hadn't got the results of the scan. Um, they got those results and they said, right, you're now under the care of a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon um, who's at Southampton General. We will be transferring you there later today for, uh, for an emergency surgery. I arrived in Southampton about nine o'clock on the Friday evening. And they said, well, we won't be doing the surgery this evening. I remember feeling a bit miffed. Yeah, I thought, sure. why not? Why are you not doing it? And they said, we'll do it first thing in the morning. Actually, when I think about that back, it's probably, you, you know, and I haven't asked the surgeon this, but, but I can only imagine imagine if he just spent 12 hours doing surgery I probably didn't want him to, do, to operate on me at that no, point absolutely. because he it, 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 it may have made a mistake but uh, so, so he operated first thing on the Saturday morning and then uh, wheeled me back to the ward and uh, he said I can confirm that uh, I, I, you're diagnosed with a condition called quadriquina syndrome which I'll, I'll talk about shortly he said and I said to him, well, was the surgery successful? And he said, well, yes, in that I've got the shattered remnants of the, of the disc out of your spinal cord. But sadly, I have to tell you, there's a chance and a good chance you're never going to walk again, which is a surreal thing to hear. And I remember thinking, who's he talking to? And, and then I mm -hmm. thought, well, I'm the only one lying in this bed and he's standing over me. So, so it must be me. And the only thing I could say back to him was, well, we'll see. And I thought, blimey, this is this is serious. Um, so, so just to touch on quadriquina syndrome, it is a rare condition. It affects one in a hundred thousand people a year. It normally occurs through impact injuries, car injuries, um, getting knocked off your motorbike or or, or your bicycle or, or something, where the disc in your and it's normally the lower spine. So in the lumbar spine, there are five discs which separate go between the vertebrae, and they're normally spongy and, and fluid filled sacs I suppose you would describe them as and if they go with great force backwards there's nowhere for them to go and the spinal cord sort of gets in the way and at the base of your spine all of the nerves which run up and down your spinal cord gather and hang like a horse's tail and cord yeah. equina yeah. is is the latin term for a horse's tail what happened is the the disc in my l4 just for whatever reason bad luck is is the best I can can get it, it shattered and uh, hereditary I have spinal stenosis so my spinal column is thinner than than average uh, so so when you put all of those things together all the stars align and you and you've got a shattering disc a thin area so not much protection between where the disc is and where the spinal nerves are and the disc shattered into the spine into the nerves and, and damaged them um, some of them permanently it seems some of them have recovered but at that point it was pretty terminal because I couldn't walk well I lost everything from the from the waist down so bowel function balladder function and the ability to walk so everything had gone so it's quite a bit 
to deal with and Incredible. you think okay mm. and then you just think yes. right well what happens next I, I distinctly remember there were two people who came in one was an amateur jockey and one was a guy who'd fallen off his uh, greenhouse uh, <laughs> doing some some decorating both of them had broken their backs now now when you hear that you think mm. blimey they've broken their back you know that's awful you've broken your back mm. um, they both walked they both walked out three days later because bones heal and you you know you put a cast on a big plastic thing which keeps your spine straight and they walk out it's nerve damage that that does for people um yeah. as anybody yeah. who, who suffered yeah. it will, will tell you because you can't fix nerves medical science is brilliant but as yet you know you cannot fix nerves so i was then faced with well what happens next you, you, you know i i'm uh, stuck in this hospital I can't walk I can't move anything I'm not in a great deal of pain I just can't do what I used to be able to do the physiotherapist came on about day three or four and there's a big contraption and they uh, and you just hold on to it. it's got wheels and you can lean on it and you try and walk and uh, you know there's videos of me and my feet are just hanging in space and then I plonk them down you just you can't do it. You just think, blimey. That's, uh, I think when I, when I did that, I thought, this is pretty serious. And I might I look at the video and the concentration on my face is, is massive as, as I'm battling with my own brain to think, well, I will walk again because he told mm. me that I'm not going to. And, and I don't accept that. So, so let's see what happens next. Do you, and then do I, you think you were in a bit of denial mm. when you were initially told, you know, you won't walk? Do you think yeah, I think so. Well, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, when you were actually told, how how did that feel when the surgeons there saying to you, you know? So, so it's it's disbelief to start with. It's incredulity. You think, well, what? Hold on a minute. Are you saying that to me? And that that's why the only thing I could say was, well, we'll see. Because yeah. I think it was, I don't believe you, or you're wrong, or or, or any of those other emotions. It's no, you no, you you've got it wrong. You've made a mistake you know that this can't be happening but it was happening and you become utterly reliant on good people working in the hospital they're the people that get you out of bed to try and move you you know to keep yourself moving mm. because i knew you, the last thing you want is staying in bed um they gave me a statistic every three days that you spend bedridden you lose 10 percent of your muscle mass and that's really difficult to get back anyway i was fortunate and I count myself fortunate that and it's quite perverse saying this the damage that had been done was so great that that I was considered a worthy candidate to be transferred to the specialist spinal unit at Oddstock at Salisbury Hospital had that not happened I would be nowhere near where I am today and, and, I'm, and I'm pretty sure about that 10 days post-surgery May the 15th I was uh, and taken the 45 minutes from Southampton to Oddstock, where I then began a process of what turned out to be three months, 83 days in hospital with one sole focus, as far as I was concerned, and that was getting out of this wheelchair. You've got, you've got a whole team around you. And so slowly but surely, you, you start with some physio exercises and then you know I, I they tipped me out the wheelchair one day and I was like what are you doing and and, and I couldn't crawl and, and let mm. me tell you I was 46 when this happened and I had a lot of things on my bucket list to do before I hit 50 uh, learning to walk again wasn't one of them and especially learning to crawl again 
and I physically couldn't do it. And it was frustrating because you know what to do. Your brain yeah. is saying, well, it's dead easy. I mean, okay, it's a long time since I'd crawled, but, but you never forget how to do it. But I couldn't, I couldn't lift my leg. And anyway, the answer to why am I being tipped out of this wheelchair is, well, you've got to learn how to get back in it because you will fall out of it. Everybody does. And, and it's important for your own security and, you know, a little bit of freedom that you know how to get back into it. Because if you're out around the hospital and you fall out your wheelchair, there might not be anybody there to get you back in. So it's fine. That was part of the process. And I was making quite good progress. And there were two gyms there, physio gyms with specialist equipment, um, including weightlifting equipment that you Incredible. could use in a wheelchair. Mm. And I'd started to use all of that. And, and, and I started to get some pain in my right side. Sometimes I would struggle to catch my breath and I just think, oh, I must have just pulled a muscle. And I remember saying to, to the physiotherapist and, and the nurses, oh, don't worry, it's just intercostal. It's between the ribs. It's just I've overworked. And then about 10 days later, it all went horribly wrong. All of a sudden, I couldn't breathe. My, my oxygen sats dropped. All these alarms were going off. And all of a sudden, everybody rushed in, laid me down flat. They're putting needles in my hand and my arm. And, 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 and I remember being close to, to unconscious when, when all this was happening. I was aware it was going on, but I was struggling to breathe. So they whisked me down to the um, CT scanner and then brought me back. <laughs> they said, well, we found out what the problem was. And it certainly wasn't an intercostal problem you've got multiple embolisms in your lung and uh, you got about three days before that killed you before it dislodged and went and went into your heart blocked your heart and uh, and it was game over and I said right well good we know what it is so let's fix it and, and that's just a case of thinning the blood which is uh, so I ended up you know stabbing myself in the stomach for for a few weeks and then uh, I spent a year actually on blood thinners just to to prevent those clots re reoccur you know the journey continued you have to do all sorts of all sorts of stuff and uh, you know there is a process you have to trust the process and I, I always consider myself a good patient I listen I learn I ask questions I do the exercises I'm set sometimes I get a little bit frustrated and I did because they said all oh, right tomorrow you're going uh, we're, we're taking you into town on a bus and I said why and they said oh because that's what we have to do you know you, you have to get used to go I said I said I don't go on buses oh yeah but you need to know you need you know you need to be able to be um, to have the freedom of I said what's the actual purpose of this trip and they said uh, well so you can learn how to go up and down curbs and I said well and I looked out the window and I said a lot of curbs out there I said so can we not just do it here and they said no well you know you've got to know they hadn't had a patient before who'd said that and I yeah. said well Somebody always bucks the trend, don't they? I said, and I'm not going to go in on a bus. I said, because I, I don't need to go and buy anything. Anyway, so, so I did the, you know, the wheelchair bit in and around the hospital. But this was to become a recurring theme because shortly, probably about a week afterwards, they said, right, this is the, your meeting. They always announce the meetings. This is your meeting to discuss what wheelchair you want. Mm. I said, oh, okay. I said, um, mm -hmm. but I've got this one. That's fine. And they said, no, 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 for when you leave. And I said, I'm not having one. And they said, well, I said, I'm not having a wheelchair. And they said, well, you know, you sort of are going to need one because you can't walk. And I said, ha I said, so, but when I leave here, I will walk. I said, and that's incumbent on all of us in, in this room, um, you as the physio, you as the occupational health person, you as the sister and me as the patient 
to make sure that that I do walk out and, and don't need a wheelchair. And and they and they still they kept trying to persuade me. And, and then they said, "We're wasting our time." Aren't we? So I, I carried on. The weeks went past, and I'm now walking in parallel bars, doing all the exercises. I started to use the hydrotherapy pool. I've been a swimmer ever since I was a child. So I felt at home. They put me in this nice warm pool and I thought, great, I feel in inverted commas normal. I can do stuff that I used to be able to do. Albeit I couldn't kick my legs, which is a bit frustrating because you end up swimming a bit like this with your legs hanging down and you're trying to keep your head above the water. But 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 it's it, it you know it's it's doing stuff again. I then I started to get stronger. Mm. I joined the only patient to ever have done so uh, but I joined the staff gym. I, I had to pay a membership and uh, I had to do a risk assessment and all that good stuff. But but it meant that every day at six o'clock in the morning, and I managed to to say to the nurses, you know, because they would bring people's breakfast at about half past seven. And I, and I managed to convince them. I said, can you bring me a cup of tea at six o'clock? Just, just a cup of tea and maybe a couple of biscuits every morning. I said, that'll wake me up. That's, that, that's my like, routine, if you like. And then I would take myself off to the gym and go swimming back to the ward. And then I would make, and the, the best thing about that mm-hmm. spinal unit is there's a kitchen for patients. So you can make your own toast, you can make your cup of tea and, you know, and you've got a fridge and you can keep your own stuff in there. So it's brilliant because it gave you that freedom to, to come and go. So, so then I started to think, right, well, you know, you go into the gym, you, you, you can't walk yet, not, not even with crutches or not even with using a, a, a wheeled walker, but, but you're getting there. Then they, they had another conversation with me and said, right this is your final chance um you got to pick a wheelchair if you don't pick a wheelchair and you subsequently need one you'll end up with a rubbish one and i said not having one end of conversation let's move on so we left it at that point and um on the 6th of august 2018 i walked out on crutches wow i say walk it was it was a shuffle but hey it was me leaving under my own under my own steam and, and then, I, and then, but then you think, well, what happens next? And and I said to the NHS, what, so what, what's the plan now? You know, you, you it, it, I, I guess being there played into everything that I was, that I'd previously experienced through childhood, being at being at a boarding school, through the military, you know, where it's very regimented, and 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 that hospital was the same. So it's regimented. You know what you're doing. You've got a plan every day. You get up. You go to the gym. You do this. You do the other. Then they say you're going, you're 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 going home, and you think, what am I going to do? How am I going to get better? What what support have I got? And I said, so when does my physio start? And they said, uh, well, there isn't a pathway um, for what you've got. Uh, we've referred you to outpatient physiotherapy. You can expect um, it's a twelve week wait, and then you'll get an hour a week outpatient. And I said, that's not going to work for me. That is not going to work for me because, I, I, you know, I need to get better. I need, to, I want to be back at work. This desire of yours to like really get back to work and get out. I mean, how how did they take that when you're saying I want to get back to work? I want to do this. People looked at me like I had two heads on. They think, what what is this guy all about? You know, and 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 it's funny. Somebody, I had a conversation with somebody just this week. He didn't know what had happened to me. And we got talking. He said, "Oh, I've seen your, uh, I've seen your just giving page, and I've seen your stuff on the on the work internet. Did you not ever think about never coming back to work and just taking medical retirement?" And and I, 
And it flashed through my mind and I thought, mm-hmm. well, that would have been good, wouldn't it? You know, I could now be, you know, working for the charity full time and uh, with a pension, wouldn't that be great? Um, yeah. And I said, it didn't cross my mind for one second. My focus was to get back to work. My boss was brilliant, by the way, as were the guys that, that I work with. And they visited me, they made a rotor and they visited me every single day when I was in hospital for the whole of the three months. But they also know that the sort of person I am and they were concerned that, that I was pushing myself too hard and trying to get back to work too soon. I, I went back to work six months after, after the uh, injury and uh, albeit on a phased return. Um, so I went back to work in the October and I was back working full time in the February. Now, was that too quick? Maybe. Was, was I going stir crazy? Yes. Did I need something to stimulate my brain? Yes. Are you going to do so many puzzles or Sudoku's before you think, I've got to start interacting with people again. But, but the thing that nobody tells you about is one of the side effects of having a spinal cord injury is, is a thing called brain fog. And I suffer it even now and fatigue. Because, because not everything works as it should, I get very tired very quickly. And, and I'd always poo-pooed fatigue. I thought, ah, it's just, it doesn't exist. You know, you're just tired. Well, it exists. And it, and it hits you like a train sometimes. You know, you, you can be fine one minute and literally 10 seconds later, you're absolutely zonked out. And the brain fog means you forget stuff. Now, people say, jokingly, well, you're just getting old, Brian. And, you know, when you get old, you forget stuff. And I said, yeah, true. I said, but not to the level that, that I forget stuff. I've got lists and bits of paper written down everywhere. But I guess if I just come back to waiting for a one hour a week um, physio wasn't going to be a thing. So we found a physiotherapy company called Hobbs, and they are specialists in neurological physiotherapy. When you say we, who, who was supporting you with this? So, so my partner, Louise, was, um, was well, she was there every single day and keeping a day job as well. So she would work 12 hours at work and then jump in the car, drive 45 minutes, come and see me, make sure everything was all right, put me to bed and then go home. So, I mean, she, she would arrive normally between five and six of an evening and stay until nine, nine thirty, and then go home. I don't, I don't know how she did it. I don't know how either of you did it, but you need that support network, don't you, to help you? Massively. But, you know, just if nothing else, to have the conversations that you don't really want to have with other people. You know, you need to say how you're feeling. And and, you, and that's not to say you should bottle stuff up because you have to let the professionals know what's going on because they're the ones that are treating you. But there, there are some things. So, so she said to me early on, and it's a question which you think, blimey, um, it's not a question you really want to have to answer. But she said, okay, so you've lost three things. You've lost the ability to walk, you've lost bowel function, and you've lost bladder function. If you can only get two back, what two are you going to choose? And I was like, oh, blimey, there's a question. And uh, and I've asked that question of others um, since. You know, it, it it was a very private question, and uh, but but it's one that that I'm happy to talk about, and, and one that I ask other people about now. Ninety five percent of people give the same answer as me. I said, uh, I, I, my bowel function and the ability to walk. I said, because bladder management, whilst it's difficult to learn, and I, I won't go into the gory details because it's, it's not a very pleasant thing to have to learn, uh, but once you've learned it, it just becomes part of your, 
part of your daily life. And it also draws into something which I'd never considered. And it was my father who actually said it. And he said, before you were in a wheelchair, and that's hard as well for parents, you know, to see their child in a wheelchair. He said, I would look at somebody in a wheelchair and think, oh, poor person, you know, they can't walk. And I said, that's the least of, least of my worries. I said, trying to function is difficult. I said that you get used to not walking because you can propel yourself in a wheelchair. You can move around. But trying to do your daily routines is, is the thing that it's, you get all sorts of, so UTIs are, are, are common. You're introducing a foreign body into your bladder. You know, there are, there are inherent risks of that. But it just becomes, it's about finding the right product. So, so the first time they made me try and um, self-catheterize, they didn't do it well. And I told them this. So, so I like to know what's going on. I like to plan. I like to know what, what the plan is. But to, to, to whisk me off into a side room, having given me a bacon sandwich, I should have known something was up because normally the food wasn't a bacon sandwich for breakfast. So, so, so they, were, they were buttering me up. And then they, said, they whipped the indwelling catheter out. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, you're going to be doing it. Um, you're going to be doing it yourself. Uh, we'll be back in three hours. Anyway, they, they then produced this tube and it was as long as my arm. And, 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 and when I say this, most men cross their legs because uh, it, it, it really is from the tips of your fingers to your elbow. And, they, and I say, well, what do you want me to do with that? And they said, well, you're going to put it into your bladder. And, and I said, I'm not. And they said, no, you are. And you build it up into this whole, and now I've got three hours to worry about this. So all I could think of for the next three hours was, how the hell am I going to do this? And um, there was an awful lot of blood the first five times we tried, but you learn it. It's a skill that you learn. And I spent the next, um, it was about 14 months from that point until fortunately my bladder started to work again. So touch wood for two years now, bladder's fine bowel function came back I'm walking I'm running okay my bowel's slow it's slower than a, than a normal bowel but but it works it's uh, you've really had a successful outcome haven't you it's I mean it's 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 amazing really when I think to where I was and the prognosis you know that's not to say that that, that I don't have issues I mean I still I live in pain daily. My feet are numb. I don't have much eversion, it's called, on my left foot. I can't turn it out. The backs of my legs are numb and my saddle is all numb. The whole area is numb. So I have to be careful. I, there could be a stone in my shoe, for example, um, a sharp stone or a bit of glass or something, and I wouldn't know. And so you know, I could cause myself some damage. So you always got, you put your shoes on, you make sure everything's okay, you feel around. And, and I have orthotics in my in my shoes to help me walk and they're brilliant without them then I wouldn't be able to do it but but from being told you're never going to walk again to running a half marathon for me that is the it's the antidote to I've got to tell you you're never going to walk again yeah, at what point Brian did you actually decide to do the marathon in Southampton I, I can't pinpoint the exact date so what happened is I joined the gym locally here um, you know and I, and I would turn up there with crutches and I couldn't jump off the floor you know so that was my first challenge to myself and that took me about four months because I had no I couldn't physically push up with my feet and I, and I learned to do that and then I could use the bike so I was on the watt bike and I could do that and I thought, oh, I'm starting to get somewhere. Then I could, then I was walking with just a stick. And then as, as my legs got stronger and I built the muscles up, I, there's um, a rotating staircase in the gym. 
And, and I used to use that. And, I, and that was really, really good. And I'd look with great jealousy and a little bit of frustration at people on the treadmills. Because uh, I used to run before the injury. And I would look at these people and think, you don't know how lucky you are. You, you know, you're just coming in, you're just doing it. You, you know, you don't think about that. You're just, that's just part of your daily life. And it used to be part of mine. And, and, and I thought, and it will be part of mine again, but but I don't know when. You've had an injury just lately, haven't you? Trying to set a PB. How do you cope when you have yeah, setbacks so like that? Part of my preparation is, you know, I'd learned how to walk again. I'd learned how to run again. And, and I thought, when you do this race, you're you're going to be running with 10,000 people. And I've run races before. I've run a marathon before. And, and when you are... Well, so I've got balance issues. So I can't move very well from left to right, certainly not very quickly. And, and it suddenly dawned on me that when I do this race, you're going to be surrounded by people, some of whom may be slower than you, and you're going to have to try and get past them. How are you going to do that when you've never practiced it? So I thought, right, I, I, I will start doing some park runs. I did my first one two weekends ago, and, and, it, and it gives you a time. And that plays to my worst traits, because uh, now there's an official recorded time. And, uh, and I want to beat it, of course. And, and, and my sports therapist had said to me, you don't need to beat that. You, you know, you, you're, you're at risk of injuring yourself if you try and do that. And, and of course, I ignored all of that advice and, and went out and smashed the PB by 50 seconds. So, but I've got a bit of a, a, a bit of a niggle, I guess, is the best way to describe it. I, I suppose whenever I run because of the deficiencies in, in in my muscles some muscles work harder than others others don't work at all so I always am in pain for two to five days after every run irrespective of the distance that I have run um, and it's normally in my calves so so I've got that pain anyway but I've also got a little bit of pain on the outside of my knee and interestingly all of that is linked to having tight hip flexors I mean it's amazing knee bone connected to the thigh bone and all that as the song goes but uh, yes yeah, so I so, so dealing dealing with it it's just another setback there, there are in any recovery in any in anything that you do the the road is never smooth is it and it's how you it's coping strategies for that so you know I could have just thought oh this is the end of the world I've got an injury I'm never going to be able to run the race blah, blah, blah. well it, it's not that bad an injury and a little bit of rest and um not trying to thrash a PB this weekend because I was going to run again this weekend um but 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 sense has um finally prevailed and and I'm not going to I, I shall see my running coach Saturday morning and then I will probably exercise through swimming or or cycling on a, on a on a bike in the gym just to keep my fitness up ahead of ahead of the race right you're doing this for aerability so why why have you chosen aerability when I was at school um I I had one dream um as lots of small boys do I'm sure I wanted to be a pilot and that was it and, and I put all <laughs> of my focus that, into being you, a ben? pilot <laughs> well Brian Brian actually my, my son um wanted to be a pilot from a very young age and he he is a commercial pilot for BA now so I understand a bit about that passion for flying and obviously that was one of my questions to ask you what why flying what makes you want to fly well, okay, so it's a bit of a it's a it's a story of um, uh, of failure, um, but but hey, you never get to to succeed unless you failed, right? So so I I, I wanted to be a pilot, and, and at, at the time, so so I was doing my A levels, nineteen eighty eight, 
uh, and British Airways were recruiting for pilot sponsorship. But in order to be to meet the criteria, you had to have A levels in maths and physics. And I got an N in uh, in maths. Nobody can really tell me what N means. Is it nearly or numpty or not good enough or, or whatever? <laughs> but but it but it's a fail. And so I thought, oh blimey, that's uh, that's got a spanner in the works. Now my father is uh, um, was in the navy, and I was sent to a naval school. So I was uh, at a naval school, and I said, I'm never going. I'm not joining the military. You know, I've, I've had a military upbringing. I've been to a military school. Anyway, I got my A-level results and I wasn't quite sure what happens next. So he, at the time, he was based in Belgium at a, at a big NATO establishment. And I said, I'm going to come and have a year off and I'm going to learn to fly and I'm going to retake maths and I'm going to teach myself it. And um, so I did. Uh, and I spent the next three months starting to learn to fly, paying for it by working in a bowling alley on, on, the, on this big base and, and as a barman and as a, as a bowling lane mechanic. And um, I retook my maths A-level three months later uh, and got an N. Okay. And I thought, <laughs> someone's <laughs> trying to tell me something here. And, and so I thought, well, I'll have another go. And, uh, and, and I retook it again three months later, so six months after the original one, and I got a C. So I thought, great, I've now got physics and maths at A-level. So I can apply to British Airways. In the meantime, um, in the month of July 1990, I took myself off to Florida for four weeks. I'd, I'd amassed a grand total of eight hours flying in Belgium in the six months because the weather's not very good. And I went, I had a return ticket for four weeks and I went to a place called Naples in Florida and I learned to fly and I got a pilot's license in three and a half weeks. Wow. So great. I thought wow. I've now got two A-levels and I've got a pilot's license and I'm only 19. This is all looking good. So I applied to British Airways. And uh, I took their aptitude tests and they said, you haven't got the aptitude to fly. Oh. And I said, but I've got a pilot's license. And they said, it doesn't matter. Uh, you haven't passed our, you haven't met the standard. And I was like, mm. right, okay, what do I do now? So I thought, I'm going to join the forces then. I, I, you know, I didn't want to do that, but I thought, yeah, you know, I've seen what a good life it's given my dad. So let's do that. Let, I'm going to join the Navy as a helicopter pilot. There you go. So I applied to the Royal Navy and uh, and I did their officer selection and they said, um, you haven't got that. You haven't got the attitude to fly. I was like, oh, OK, so then I applied to the Air Force and they said exactly the same thing because they always the same tests and the same results. So they said, yeah, you, you can't you can't fly. However, the Air Force said to me, you, you can become an officer in, in the Royal Air Force. You can either be a navigator or you can be an air traffic controller. Now, I was aware of air traffic control because previously I'd applied to a company called NATS, which was National Air Traffic Services, and I yeah. failed their aptitude tests. Um, so I'd had a litany of failure. But now somebody's holding out a little carrot for me and said, you can be one or t'other. And I phoned my dad. I said, what do you think? And he said, don't be a navigator, son. And I said, why not? And he said, because what are the transferable skills? And I said, okay, fair enough. So I said to the Air Force, I'd love to be an air traffic controller, please. And so I was accepted, spent eight years in the Air Force as an air traffic controller, and then applied to NATS and, and was successful and have been with them ever since. My flying went by the wayside because I joined the, I joined the military and I was you know, totally engrossed in that. So NATS is a corporate partner for air ability. So I was aware of the charity anyway. And after I'd had my injury and after I'd come out of hospital, um, I noticed on social media that they were advertising 
um, for a trustee position at the charity. And, and, and I didn't even have to think for a nanosecond. Um, I thought, well, I've got the experience of, of aviation and I'm now also a disabled man. So, so I can bring both of those bits together and bring some, some value to the, to the charity. So, so I applied for, for the role, I was interviewed um, and, and I'm really lucky to, to have been offered that role and I've been doing it now for 18 months. Now, there is no greater vision for me really than, than seeing people who are unable to walk and in, in some cases unable to move anything from the, from the chest down because of paralysis. We have hoists at the charity. We hoist them into, into adapted aircraft and, and they fly. And the, so some, of, some of the things that, that people, our pilots say are unbelievable, but, but the best thing for me is somebody um, articulated it perfectly by saying, when I'm in the air, I'm just another voice on the radio. Nobody knows me, nobody knows my story, nobody's judging me, nobody's looking at me, and you know, I am just doing what I enjoy doing. And, and, and actually, one of the strap lines that, that we've got as a charity is, if I can fly a plane, what else can I do? And, and, and it's that, that that spurs people mm. on, because it, not everybody totally. can fly a plane, you know? And so, so if you can fly an aircraft and you're disabled, it, it gives you that oh, empowering. I can do whatever totally. I want. Exactly. Yeah. I can do what I want. I, you know, I've proved I can fly that airplane. I can, the world's my oyster. And, uh, and, and, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant seeing the faces of people who have been up in the aircraft once they land, they come out and the smile is from ear to ear oh. and we just want to go and do it again. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really re rewarding to be involved. Thank I you. love that word you use, empowering, that your flying is empowering. Yeah. What do you feel empowers you now where you are now? Well, so the charity 100% empowers me, um, but my own recovery empowers me in a way because I look back and, and deliberately so I look at videos and photographs of me in the wheelchair, in the bed, unable to move my anything from the waist down, learning to crawl again, learning to walk again. And, and there were times when I thought, you might never do this. You might never be able to do it. You might never be able to do those things that you enjoyed. I used to love running. It used to be a, a head clearer for me before work. And, yeah. uh, and I was never able to replicate it. And it used to frustrate me. You know, I'd go to, as part of my recovery in, um, in, in a place called Oaksy House where, where the injured jockeys fund. The neurophysios would work with me and, and I'd be using a, a punch bag to try and get that frustration out. But, but, but it, nothing, nothing cleared my head in the way that running used to clear my head before the, the injury. And so I thought, well, I'm going to run again. I'm going to run again. Not to do marathons and ultra marathons, although obviously I'm running the half marathon, <laughs> but I'm going to, but, but I'm going to do it because I want the ability to be able to run two or three times a week for, for both my mental and my physical health. And so that's, that empowers me more than anything because I shouldn't be able to do it medically. No, I defies medical logic. It. Yeah, absolutely. So there's nothing more empowering than that, to be honest. And would, would you say that you're happy with where you are now? Yeah, I, uh, um, 100%. And uh, it's interesting. So, so I did a piece, uh, I think you saw it. So, so BBC Saturday did something and, and, and 
Lewis Coons, who was the presenter, asked me a question, which, which was a really good question. And he asked me it twice because maybe I didn't give a good enough answer the first time. But he, but he said, will you allow yourself to be proud when you cross that finish line? And that's mm-hmm. a really, really yeah. good question because I am so focused on the goal and, and, and my answer, and, and it remains the same, I've, I've reflected on the answer I gave, it's the same. Probably not the second I cross the finish line because there'll be a sense of achievement, but, but, but I'll, I know I'll be in pain and, and I know I'll probably need a beer. But um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's in the 48 hours afterwards that you reflect and think, I am proud of what I've done because I've come from that, that day and there's a good chance you're never going to walk again to three and a half years later to the day running a half marathon. So that's yes, incredible uh, story. So you should. So, so I'm very happy, proud. Uh, you know, but there's still so much I want to do. Uh, I, I want to regain my pilot's license, and that's next on my um, after this half marathon. I'm going to learn to fly again, and uh, and so Amazing. I'm hoping that by next summer I'll be flying people. You know, family and friends. I've promised flights. I'll be able to take them flying. Wow, I don't doubt it for one one second. Yeah, well, I've got to I've got to remember how to do it, but it's pretty much like riding a bike, I hope. So once I'm up there, it should be fine. I'm fascinated by everything you've said. And I know your challenge is coming up in a couple of weeks time. Would you be happy to come back and talk to us about how you've got on? Of course. That would be amazing. Yeah, that would be really love to hear. And I'll bring my medal as well. Oh, definitely. I love the way that you assume you're going to do it. I think that mentality Uh, that you've got is just brilliant even oh. if i have to crawl the last two miles i'll be i'll cross that finish line absolutely well thank you thank you very much indeed we have loved having you and and also hopefully next time we will be a bit better with the technology <laughs> no the technology is fine and i think we've done, <laughs> we've done remarkably well and uh, and it has genuinely been a pleasure to to come and, uh, and talk to you about the last uh, three years well, it's certainly oh, been very you. inspiring for us. So it has. Thank you so much, Brian. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you all. And I'll see you in a few weeks. Oh, wonderful, Anne. He reminds me of Jonathan. I can remember when Jonathan broke his ankle and that sheer relentlessness. As a 16 yeah. year old yeah. boy, I can remember going to the hospital and them saying, Sure, he'll walk again. You know, he might have a limp, but sure, he'll walk again pedaling a bike again well, I don't know but that sheer relentlessness of like actually I'm going to prove I will wrong. that's yeah. exactly what Brian's got yeah I think so and he's had it all his life hasn't he from from failing maths and doing his A-level a maths three yeah. times I think that's it's, it's yeah. a bit of doing doesn't it and, and getting getting the rejections from British Airways and the rejections from air traffic control and just constantly yeah. bat- battering the door down until he got where he wanted, you know? And I think that that surely that mindset has helped him overcome all the, all the physical yeah. problems, hasn't it? And that's exactly yeah. what he says. He describes, when I talked to him on the phone before the interview, he describes his mind as his biggest muscle. Oh. Because that's my well, that most is, powerful I, muscle. Sure. And that's why I know I'll do it. Yeah. So how did Brian get on? Find out in our very next episode, out tomorrow. Till then, bye. If you have any questions for Brian or any of our other guests, you can contact us on all our 
usual social media platforms or email us on unexpectedturnspod.com. 